You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, looking at verses 17 through 24 once again. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. There are many who would say, and I'm sure all of us have heard something to the gist of, someone saying that they would never darken the doors of a church, and that they reject Christianity because of the hypocrites in church. Or there are those who have said that they have, quote, deconstructed their faith. In other words, they've made a profession and they walked away from it. They're apostates. But they claim that what led to their deconstruction is looking at Christians who claim to be Christ followers and yet how they lived and, and what they really were and the hypocrisy that they saw there. And to those... There have been many who have responded, trying to invite them still to church with a little bit of sarcasm, saying to those who would uh, lay the charge of hypocrisy to the church, saying, don't, don't worry about it, we still have room for one more. Or there are those who try to reason with them and say something to the gist of, well, saying that you won't go to church because of hypocrites there is like saying you won't go to the gym because of those who are out of shape there. And you see what people were trying to say. But even with that line of reasoning, I still think there's a problem. Because really, to address this, we have to actually define what it is to be a hypocrite. Uh, that, that's really where the, the argument in all this lays. What, what does it mean to be a hypocrite? Does it, does it mean that if we call ourselves a Christian, we go to church, and yet we sin, or we struggle with a certain area of sin, or maybe even multiple areas of sin. Does that mean we're a hypocrite? Which one of us does that not describe? Are we all hypocrites then? No. When we confess this is true about us, we say, yes, we're Christ followers, but we struggle. I haven't made it yet. But no, we're not hypocrites in that. It's when we claim to be something that we're not. It's when we claim to be more righteous than we really are. It's when we claim to have it all together when we're really falling apart. That's really what it is to be a hypocrite. Matter of fact, the word hypocrite, it comes from the Greek word hypocrites which is the word for an actor in ancient Greece, for the Greek comedies or tragedy. And it specifically actually refers to the mask that actors would wear that would exaggerate their facial features or their expressions. And so it can be the idea of wearing a mask or acting, pretending to be something that you are not. That's where we get this word from, the idea behind it. And so if you pose yourself as someone who's holier than thou, that you are greater than you really are, then sure, okay, maybe the charge does is deserving. 
But we have to recognize Luther was right when he said that Christians are saints yet sinning. That's valid. Now, that doesn't give us an excuse to sin. Just because we're all struggling and none of us have made it yet, that doesn't mean, well, then I can, I can sin freely, right? Because everyone's in the same boat and it's, it doesn't really matter. Nobody's reached perfection. No, instead, recognizing that, and so recognizing the depths of grace that God has shown to all of us, and how great he is to save a wretch like me, that should spur me on to more love for my Savior, and therefore not wanting to do the things that displease him, and recognizing his lordship in my life, and so seeking to put sin to death in my life, to grow in holiness. So it's not an excuse to sin, we recognize that there is still sin in all of us that we need to work at killing for the glory of God in our lives. Not to be saved, but because we have been saved. Right? We, we, we talked a little bit about that, mentioned at least in Sunday school. And really that's part of why God has put us in the church together. To be used by God, each one of us, in each other's sanctification. The church is one of the means that the Holy Spirit uses to grow us in holiness that we would be pressing each other on and we'd be pointing each other back to God and our dependency on Christ to remind each other of the gospel that we would, out of love for our Lord, be seeking and pursuing holiness. But again, that's the result, though, of one who is trusting in Christ, who, who's one, one who has their hope in the gospel. When we have our hope in something else and therefore have a false hope, well, really, that, that leads to, to not genuineness and, and seeking to kill our sin, but that, that leads to really seeking to hide our sin and, and all means of hypocrisy. And as we already began this passage, the last time we were in Romans, we started to talk about that. How false hope can lead to hypocrisy. So again, last time we were in Romans, we're in this very passage. This is a, a subsection uh, of the larger section where Paul is showing that of all mankind, Jew or Gentile, there is no one who is righteous, no one who understands, no one who sees God, no one who does good, not even one. That's, that's the point of this larger section. And as Paul has been breaking this down, he begins by showing the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. And then he transitions to show the unrighteousness of the Jews. And in this, showing the necessity of the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel, the righteousness from God. And it's necessary because no one has righteousness. And yet scripture is clear, without righteousness, no one will enter the kingdom of God. And so again, in this section that we're in, Paul is specifically focusing on the Jews. And we saw Paul pick up once again, this rhetorical device that he was using of speaking to an imaginary opponent who in this section represents those Jews who would disagree with Paul's teaching, namely, as he has shown that Jews and Gentiles are on level ground before the judgment bar of God and that each face the impartial judgment of God. And so as we looked last time, Paul began this section with a, a conditional statement that is assumed to be true. 
And he's pointing out the things that this Jewish imaginary opponent would be putting his hope in to escape judgment before God. And that is the blessings that we see in verses 17 and 18. And then from those blessings, the privileges uh, that they assumed, as we see in verses 19 and 20. And so we see these blessings they, they had and these privileges, because of them, they put their hope in being safe before God when it came to judgment, of getting a pass. And as we've gone through this, Paul, again, setting up this condition, assuming it to be true, saying, so since all of this is true, since you, you put your hope in these blessings, you put your hope in these privileges, since that's true, then Paul draws a conclusion. And basically, his conclusion is, as we began to discuss last time, that is, trusting in these things had resulted in not being safe before God in judgment, but instead resulted in hypocrisy. And so these things were really nothing to hope in at all. They were false hopes. And so we're going to continue talking about this passage here this morning and, and, and getting deeper into the latter section that we left off in last time. And so if you would, read with me, again, starting in verse 17, and we'll read on through verse 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you, are, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. So again, all, all these blessings that the Jews had, being of the chosen nation of God, they then assumed these privileges of teaching those who did not have these blessings, namely the Gentiles. And we discuss it. It's not totally untrue that they had that privilege as teachers. That is, in a sense, a result of, of all the things that God had given them and God's choosing of them. Uh, but these blessings and these privileges were not taken as responsibilities from God to the Gentiles, but instead, they were just one more reason to self-righteously think themselves superior to the Gentiles and safe in judgment. But again, that was a false hope. So Paul concludes, instead of having reason for hope, they actually blaspheme God in their hypocrisy. And so thinking themselves as teachers, Paul begins to show this hypocrisy by saying, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself. And that's an important question. And really anyone who's a teacher should Reflect on that and, and think about that. Now, anyone teaching others about God and his ways? To ask, do I apply what I teach to myself? Do I, do I teach myself? 
one, those who teach others must see the seriousness of the role and do it in the fear of the Lord. Which then means to strive to avoid hypocrisy by teaching yourself, by applying what you teach to yourself. And that can be a difficult task. And so any of the Bible teachers and Sunday school teachers and everything that that you know and that that are here at North Valley, you should be praying for each one. Because that's difficult. Be praying and, and recognize how hard that is. Pray for me. It's easy to miss this point. It's so easy with pride to think of those who I think really need to hear this, right? To to be thinking of others and never give a thought to how much I'm the one who really needs to hear it. It's really easy to do that. Even when I'm spending time in the Word just for my own edification, right? It's easy to be thinking about how this passage could be preached. And again, who, who needs to hear what's in this passage as opposed to just sitting there to be edified for myself and letting that passage shine a light on my own heart where I need to repent. That's hard. And, and, and so pray about that. <laughs> that. That's a dangerous place to be. You know, I've told you before about the quotes that have really brought conviction to me uh, when specifically in passages that have been really hard to preach because they've really just been like a a ratchet that just twists my heart uh, because of my own sin or my own deficiency or whatever it is. And I've told you that quote from John Calvin when he said, if a preacher is not first preaching to himself, better that he falls on the steps of the pulpit and breaks his neck than preaches that sermon be better to break my neck. <laughs> or what Alistair Begg says, that the passage first has to plow my own soul. And so it could be rightly asked, Scott, do you, do you not teach yourself? And so please hold me accountable to that. I need that accountability. We all need to hold each other accountable as we care for each other, as we are lovingly aiming to keep each other humble and press each other on to growing in Christ-likeness, pressing each other on to, uh, to, yes, know God's Word and to study God's Word and to memorize God's Word, but also to apply God's Word to ourselves. For however much we know God's Word, that knowledge is absolutely worthless if we don't apply it to ourselves. Even holding each other accountable Really, that is teaching and applying God's word. So if we're going to hold each other accountable, again, are we teaching ourselves first? Are we applying it to ourselves first? If we're not, then the same charge that Paul lays against the Jews here in this passage could be laid against us. Speaking of such a thought, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, said, as you read your Bible day by day, Do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motivation when you read the Bible? Is it to just have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourself? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? 
allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. Why? Because the more you know of the Bible, the more light you have, and therefore the more light you're accountable to. So it's dangerous if you know it, but you don't apply it. Brothers and sisters, are we teaching ourselves as we seek to teach others? Parents, (laughs) we need to be teaching ourselves as we seek to teach our kids. How many times have I seen something in my kid that I've sought to correct only to be like, oh, that, that looks a lot like me. Do I need to be correcting that in me? And again, that's hard and difficult. Say, well, then I just won't teach my kids and I can avoid any notion of hypocrisy altogether. Uh, That's not an option. Don't trade one sin, one area of displeasing God for another. We must teach our kids, and we must hold each other accountable here in the church. And so therefore, we need to be applying God's truth to ourselves. And so as Paul is is revealing the issue here of, of the Jews seeing themselves as teachers but not teaching themselves, he he begins to to really unravel this uh, hypocrisy in them as he continues. And he asks, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? And then verse 22, he says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And notice here what Paul is using. He's referring to the Ten Commandments here. He is referring to God's law, the very thing that the Jews boasted in, what they rested on. And so Paul is taking all that they found hope in, in their religiosity, being called a Jew, resting on the law, boasting in God, and especially the privilege of teaching others. Paul takes the law here like a wrecking ball to completely destroy everything that they were putting their hope in. Because really, what good is one's religiosity? What good is one's privileges? If you're a sinner. Because those things will not make you righteous in your sin. And even us sitting here, what what good is, is your religiosity? Growing up in a Christian home, going to church, saying you believe in God, when all the while it makes no meaningful difference in your life. When you have no sincerity towards the things of God, there's no true heart transformation And so no love for the Lord, and and so no love for what pleases him. And so there's no obedience out of the heart. So what good was the Jews' religiosity and all that they claimed for themselves when they disobeyed the law? What good was it to be of God's chosen people, to have his revelation, to have a line of ancestors who walked with God and knew God? What good was it to have so much light when they continued to live in darkness? When having the law did not have its desired effect. And so at the heart of it, they were really no different than the Gentiles, doing the very opposite of what they preached and what they taught. 
Again, you preach against stealing, but do you steal? And the implication was, yes, you steal. That is what you do. And there are plenty of examples of theft in one way or another among the Jews. In the Old Testament, you see Isaiah, he, he spoke against unjust gain. And that's certainly a form of, of thievery. And, and there's great warning in Scripture about such things. Uh, for example, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 20, it says this, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. The idea of weights and measures referred to when one paid for something by weighing out gold and, and or silver. And so for one to widen their profit, the seller would use different weights other than the standard ones that they were supposed to use in order to trick the buyer. And so we see ripping someone off or overcharging or deceiving someone for your own personal gain is all an abomination to the Lord. It's theft. It's all dishonest. And not only do we see the Jews being called out by Isaiah for this, we can look at other Old Testament prophets like Amos or, or even Malachi, through whom God charged the Jews of robbing God. We read in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, it says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are a curse with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. They were failing to give to God what was owed to him. And so God charged them with theft. And then one example we see in the New Testament. Sorry about that. One example we see in the New Testament is when we see Jesus clears the temple because the religious leaders had made it a den of robbers. They did this by forcing people to uh, purchase sacrificial animals there at the, the temple. That's one way they did it. You know, a person would, would have to bring their, their lamb, their sacrifice, and the priest would have to examine it to make sure it was out, without blemish and, and was a, according to the standard of the law. And if it wasn't, then they would have animals on the side there, which really wasn't how it was supposed to work, that you could purchase and use as your sacrifice if, if, if your animal didn't make the cut. But by the time we get to Jesus' day, no priest was letting any animal make the cut. And everyone was forced to really buy an animal from the temple at an outrageous price. And then, too, there's the exchange... The, the, the currency exchange to pay the temple tax, that someone would bring their denarii or whatever it was for the, the shekel to pay the, the temple tax, but they wouldn't give them a fair exchange. So Jesus called, called out the religious leaders for turning God's temple into a den of robbers. And really, with all of these examples throughout Israel's history, when you get to Paul's day, when he's writing this letter, Nothing had really changed. And there are many ways to be guilty of theft. It can come by taking more time than it's allotted to you for a lunch break or whatever it is at work. It could be in coming in late for work and making it like you came in on time with your stamper or whatever it is. And then you're stealing time from your employer. 
it can be not being honest on your taxes and lying about them so that you would owe less. There are many ways that we could steal. I'm probably going to date myself with this example, but there was a day when it was cool to burn CDs. You know, a friend would have a CD I didn't have. He already paid for it, so why should I, right? So I could take it and I could burn it or copy it on a rewritable disk. That was theft. And so again, do you, do you look down on others, condemn thievery, all the while you, you, you steal? You're a thief? And then we see Paul lays out the same line of questioning when it comes to adultery. And the Jews had practice, had a practice of divorcing their wives for any reason, including burning dinner. And they would try to create loopholes in the Mosaic Law to be able to divorce their wife when they came across someone who they found more attractive. Now, just, just let me pause for a moment, because on that note, they say husbands, and this applies to wives too, but husbands, your standard of beauty and desirability must be your wife. So wives, your standard must be your husband. And this should be, again, for the sake of your marriage and for the glory of God in your life. And she not only must be your standard of beauty and desirability, but listen, if you're struggling with lust, you have to understand she also can be your standard of beauty and desirability. But giving into lust, letting your eyes wander, and whatever avenue that, that you seek to fulfill those things, whether it's with screens or, or whatever it might be, you're going to wreck that, and, and the only one to blame is you. So you must kill your lust. Put it away. As Solomon said, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife that God gave you from the start. God only blesses the physical intimacy and fulfillment of those desires within marriage as he designed it. Channel your desires towards your wife, or else you're an adulterer. Even if you haven't been with any other, anyone else. And we've mentioned why before, but I'll mention it again in a moment. But still, back to what I was saying. It was the practice in Jesus' day to find a reason to divorce your wife for someone you found more attractive. But Jesus taught in Matthew 19 that to get a divorce... And remarry was to commit adultery for any reason, whatever it was, except in the case of sexual unfaithfulness, which then the one who was unfaithful was the adulterer. Now, there are some, though, who point out that, yeah, you see that exception in Matthew 19, but you don't see that exception in the Gospel of Mark. But we should see that in both cases, Jesus acknowledges that Moses did give them a certificate of divorce. He gave the Jews that in the law. So really, especially when we're in Mark, or specifically when we're in Mark, I think we should see Jesus' point in teaching is that just because you may have the option doesn't mean that's where you run to. Even in such a difficult situation, we still need to ask, what honors God? 
with all this, we know one cannot say, you know, I'm, I'm not even married, so I can't commit adultery. Well, no, because what does Jesus say about adultery? It's not only about your outward actions, and it's not only about your marital status. It's about the condition of your heart. And so if you're full of lust, you're an adulterer before the holy God. That's why, too, a husband can say, well, I've, I've been faithful to my wife, but if he's full of lust, he hasn't been. Before God, he's an adulterer. Again, God's standard is so high, he doesn't just judge our outward actions, right? He judges the condition of our hearts. So again, do you say one should not commit adultery and yet commit adultery yourself? Now then, as we come to verse 22, 22 is a bit interesting. And there's some debate on exactly what Paul means here at the end of verse 22. When he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The Jews' repeated guilt of worshiping idols was one of the main reasons God sent them into exile. One of the main reasons why God sent the Babylonians is to destroy Jerusalem. And so when they came out of exile, they made sure to rid themselves of any hint of possible idols and false gods among them. They, as Paul says here, abhorred, or you could say detested, or, or they loathed idols. They were revolted by them. Matter of fact, the word that's translated as abhorred here uh, can carry the idea of a, a pungent odor, like just a, ugh. Have you ever walked into a place, a room, or somewhere? where there's just this odor in it, like it just smacked you in the face when you walked in, and you just, ugh. You've had that experience, right? Well, you could think of that as the Jews' reaction to idols. It was just, ugh. It poured them. Now, the question comes in of what, what is Paul talking about is in the second part when it says, do you rob temples? What does he mean by robbing temples? Some argue that this is the defilement of a Jewish person who went into or touched anything from a pagan temple. Others say that this is the idea of profiting in any way from pagan idols. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, when Jews conquered a pagan land, uh, they were not to take the gold with which idols were made of and profit from it. Instead, they were to burn that. And so there are some who take that and say, so maybe in some way the Jews were taking from temples and, and taking the gold from those idols there and, and profiting from it somehow. And then there's others who suggest other things as well. But in any case, whatever Paul is getting at here, the point is that they were teaching one thing and they were presenting themselves in one way while they were living in a totally other way. That's the point Paul was making here. Remember, again, they rested on the law. They put their hope in having it. But clearly, they disregarded the law in their lives. They placed their hope in being Jewish, being called a Jew. They boasted in God, and yet they lived like those who did not know God or have his law. They did not live as God's covenant people. They were filled with deceit. 
And yet with all that they claimed, they were no different than the Gentiles that they arrogantly saw themselves as instructors of. So all that they claimed, all that they put their hope in, all that religiosity did them no good. And so too, it does no one today any good. No matter what that religiosity is, no matter what that advantage that one claims to have is, saying that they, they've loved God their whole lives, or they give reasons why they are Christians and they know, and yet they live unconverted lives. Professing faith, and even knowing the right words to say, is no substitute for genuine faith that sows itself in the progressive growth and change of a transformed life. You can make the people around you think that you are super spiritual, but what good is it? And when you're putting your hope in being good, in being so spiritual, then you need others to think you're spiritual, to maintain that idea. And all it does is lead to hypocrisy. False hope leads to hypocrisy. And you need people to think of you a certain way and to view you a certain way, and often in order to convince yourself and build yourself up in pride. So we have to make ourselves look good, like we have it all together. We can't let others know that we struggle with sin. We can't let others know we have conflict in our family. Even if we just spent the car ride to church yelling at one another, the kids punching each other, we got to get out of the car, straighten up, put a smile on our faces, and the kids got to walk straight under the parents' glare and threat of sudden death. We pretend like we don't hurt, like we never doubt. We need to always have that smile on our face and make it like we're full of joy. All the while inside, we're drowning in the reality of our own sin and selfishness and our sinful responses to other people's sin. And then the point of the church falls flat for us. We need each other. We need to be there for each other. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we have to open up wide for every last person in every moment and just air out all of our dirty laundry. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, at the same time, let, let, let us not pretend that we have it all together when we don't. And we should have those individuals in the church that we can confide in. Uh, those brothers and sisters that we see regularly and worship with regularly. That we press on to greater Christ-likeness and who press us on to greater Christ-likeness. Here's the truth of the matter. We need each other for this. I need you for this. God put us together to push each of us back to depend upon him. And I, I hope that there are those in the church that you can open up to and confide in, who are spiritually mature, that you can trust their counsel and help you grow in being able to give counsel to others. Help you're someone 
who people can trust in and that you're someone that you can help others grow. This is all as the body works together to build itself up in love, right? Which is what we read in Ephesians, the body is supposed to do. If not, we're all in danger of greater depths of hypocrisy. We've got to be there for each other, through thick and thin, and let each other be there for us. But to pose ourselves as as having it all together when we don't is really nothing short of pride. When we think others need to see us a certain way, it's pride that keeps anyone from being real with themselves and refusing to see that, that they are a sinner who has earned God's wrath. But if in clinging to anything about you, any good work, any religiosity, cling to anything else as to why you should be right before God, there's really no salvation there. But even as you assert your own righteousness, examine God's law and see you're a lawbreaker. You have not upheld God's standard of what's righteous and good. So you need a savior. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. And so we should take note of what Paul's doing here in this passage. As he is combating self-righteousness in the Jews, Paul upholds God's law to them. And we should do the same. In combating self-righteousness in one another, in ourselves, we need to hold up God's law. Because the law shows us none of us are righteous. We've broken all of it. That's what Paul's doing here. When he says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You are a lawbreaker. And if a lawbreaker, you're an unrighteous sinner. And an unrighteous sinner, you need a savior. And Jesus is the only savior. And we'll talk more as we keep going through Romans of how Paul uses the law. And that's, that's, that's important to see. But for now, we come to the main charge that Paul has. The culmination of everything Paul has been saying, as we see there in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. They dishonor the God they boast in by breaking the law they rested on. What good is anything that they are putting their hope in then? They'd have reason to rest in the law if they kept the law, they obeyed the law, they didn't. And since they dishonor God, how are they any better than the Gentiles whom Paul said in chapter 1 did not honor him as God or give thanks to him? Well, clearly the Jews weren't honoring God either. So were they really better than the Gentiles? No. It was all hypocrisy. Now, the whole reason God chose them and gave them his law was so that they would honor and glorify him. But instead they dishonored him. 
So verse 24 says, For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. This quote comes from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. And it seems to be adding here some reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20 and 22. Uh, But we see this is what hypocrisy results in. There in Isaiah, God's name was blasphemed as his chosen people were taken into exile, were oppressed as a result of their sin and breaking covenant with God. And so Paul is applying Isaiah here in that ultimately it was their sin that brought about the blaspheming of God among the Gentiles. When you hold on to a false hope and assert your own righteousness, all the while living like a devil, in total disregard for the standard you claim to hold and press on others, it results in blasphemy towards God. And it says here, the, the name of God is blasphemed. It's to say that, that God's character, his, his nature, his will, everything about him is blasphemed. And again, we see this today, as I, as I already talked about. There are those who will see the hypocrisy among professing believers and say, see, that's why I'm not a Christian. See, God can't exist. The gospel can't be true. Where, where's the power in the gospel that they claim? There's no power there. God's blasphemed among unbelievers. And it becomes their excuse, and and it really is just an excuse. As Paul said in Romans 1, they know the truth, but they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And so it becomes an excuse to suppress the truth, to hold on to their sin, and to reject God in their lives. Let us not open the door to that. And that's really the problem. We open the door to such accusations and blasphemy towards God if we live in hypocrisy. False religion, false hope, never really brings true heart change. But it leads to pride. It leads to moralistic living that's steeped in hypocrisy. True religion Love for the one true God. Devotion to the Lord who is Savior, right? right? That's what we talked about Christmas Eve, right? The Savior is Christ the Lord. And if we will humble ourselves under his law to see that despite all of our upbringing and religious adherence and in good works and whatever else we might want to claim for ourselves, we fall short of his righteous standard. So if we in humility will instead cling to the work of Christ, not to anything about us, but cling to Christ who was righteous for us in his perfect obedient life, if we would cling to the work of Christ, trusting in him who took our guilt on himself, the guilt of all who would believe on him, and he satisfied God's wrath and his justice on the cross, if we trust in him who died and rose again as our risen Lord, when your hope is in him, recognizing there's no hope in yourself. Such humility begins to kill hypocrisy in you and in me. So be preaching the gospel to yourself as God humbles us in the truth that without Christ, we are nothing more than wretched sinners who've deserved his wrath. And in the church together, 
as we hold out the truth of the gospel, the hope in Jesus Christ to one another, reminding each other of this gospel, being under the word together, hearing the gospel preached together. We know then that we don't have to pretend anything about ourselves to one another. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. You don't have to pretend. The gospel tells me you don't have it all together. And the gospel tells you I don't have it all together. But the gospel makes it very clear. We have one who has had it all together for us. And we trust in him and we lean on him. We depend on him. That is where true hope is found. Listen, it's New Year's Eve, right? And as we go into the new year, with all that we have before us as a church, right? we have a lot. That seems to be enough, really. <laughs> but we all individually have other things as well. Things we're either excited about, things we might be afraid of, things, whatever it is, we have things before us. But I think this is a time to reflect on this past year, to reflect on 2023 and see where we have failed to trust and where we have seemed to have self-righteous tendencies instead of fully depending on our Lord and Savior. To reflect so that we would repent and all the more lean in on Christ. And so let us preach the gospel to ourselves and to each other, going on into the new year, and joyfully go into the new year, resting in Christ and his work for us, growing more and more in our love for him and our desire to honor him, and loving our Lord, loving those whom he loves and therefore coming alongside of each other in unity and devotion to one another, praying for each other, loving each other, urging each other on to greater depths of love and dependency on our Lord. To persevere in our hope in him. And so joyfully live to please him. Joyfully. Sometimes we don't think of obedience and, and a life that's for him as joyous. It's, it's, oh, I have to do this. if he's No, we want to please him because we love him who saved us. We love him who is our hope. It's a joy to please him, a joy to obey him. So we live for him who died to purchase our true hope as we seek to apply his word to our lives. You see, we desire to see each other grow as we love each other, see each other grow in this hope and joy in living for our God and Savior. In a moment, we're going to sing, All glory be to Christ. And so as we sing, let us pray that this will be our true desire from the heart that in our lives and in our church, we would not dishonor and, and cause God's name to be blasphemed among unbelievers. But instead, with everything we are, with everything we have, with every opportunity, with every moment to live for our God, let us pray that all glory would be to Christ our King putting off all hypocrisy and resting fully in him who is our true hope. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.